G'day, and welcome back to the Teamcast. My name's Harry Moffat. I'm a director at the Mission Critical Team Institute, and I'm responsible for operations here in Australia and in New Zealand. It's great to be back and bringing you this week's show. The Teamcast is a show where Dr. Preston Klein, Claire Murphy, Janice Jackson, Coleman Ruiz, and myself, along with our guests, discuss all things Mission Critical Teams. Mission critical teams are defined as teams of four to 12 people who are indigenously trained and who solve rapidly emerging complex adaptive problem sets. Mission critical teams work in immersive environments of 300 seconds or less, where the consequence of failure is death or catastrophic loss. Regardless of whether you're on a mission critical team or not, we aim to bring you the broadest range of topics and guests as possible. Thanks for joining us and I hope you enjoy the team cast. Today I'm speaking with Superintendent Peter Ward. He's currently the Divisional Commander of the Security Services Division at Victoria Police here in Melbourne. And as such, he commands the array of tactical police capability, including the Special Operations Group, or the SOG, the SOGGIES, the Critical Incident Response Team, or CERT, uh, the Bomb Response Unit, and the Protective Services Unit. Peter has a laundry list of academic and tactical police qualifications, making one of the most experienced tactical police operators in the country. He's led many tactical teams, including during the notorious underworld wars here in Melbourne in the late 90s, uh, early 2000s. And he's also part of the arrest team at Port Arthur, the massacre in 1996. He spent time with military special operations units here in New Zealand and across Southeast Asia. He's travelled and spent time with the FBI, the LAPD SWAT team and the Explosive Entry School in the US, uh, amongst many other uh, experiences on a long career of 30 years in policing. It's pretty fair to say that Peter's done just about everything. That's why I've asked him onto the show today. In summary, Peter's worked his way from being a pimply-faced police academy candidate through to now holding one of the most important command positions, police in Victoria and, and arguably in the country. I know that Peter, along with several other senior operators, is very passionate about enhancing the life cycle of the operator from selection to transition, which of course is central to the MCTI mission, which is to improve the success, survivability and sustainability of our mission critical teams. Today we get his take on life and service within tactical police groups, selection and training, recent developments in how we develop our police tactical groups and some of the current challenges they're facing. Uh, we talk a little about selection and what are the most important characteristics he sees that we need in future operators. We'll talk about females in tactical police teams and we also ask him to share some lessons, you know, something that he would share with his younger self, something he wished he knew way back when. And we'll ask him what current police tactical group leaders and commanders can do on Monday to move the needle of performance and leadership and how we prepare and maintain our operators. And as usual, we'll finish with a little insight into what he's reading and what he's listening to now. Welcome, Peter. Thanks for agreeing to come on the uh, the Mission Critical Team Institute Teamcast. Good morning, Harry, and thank you very much for the kind introduction. No worries, mate. How are you enjoying the uh, the release from the Melbourne the Melbourne lockdown at the moment? Yeah, it's quite a relief actually. The uh, the lockdown and the different way of living certainly came as a bit of a shock to us all. Uh, it's created a variety of challenges both in my personal life and professional life, and uh, we're really happy to see the end of it at this point in time. And I think we're approaching twenty seven days yeah. without any uh, positive tests. So yeah, it's, um, it's certainly a credit to the community. Absolutely, it has been a strange time for everyone, and I know some of our listeners, well, a lot of our listeners, are, are in the Northern Hemisphere across the UK, Europe, and and the US and and elsewhere further afield. So they're they're uh, they're going through some challenging times at the moment. But for us here in Melbourne, yeah, we've we've come out of the lockdown. It's been great, and I've I've personally been privileged enough to interact with the with the SOG and and CERT operators over this time on a number of fronts. And, and one story sticks out for me, right at the start of the lockdown, COVID had hit here in Victoria 
and I was talking to one of the the operators and I said to him, you know, it must be pretty quiet on the street for you guys because it was a, a ghost town. I, I remember driving through Melbourne and there was absolutely no one on the streets and uh, he remarked that it was only us and the bad guys out on the street and I found that a an interesting image to paint about um, the, the ghost town that Melbourne was at that time. But it really goes to the point and that's been highlighted through this period for all of us that our mission critical teams have been the most important people in in our community and we've known that for a long time but it really highlights this aspect of the mission critical team community more broadly and remembering too we came out of the bushfires straight into to COVID here in Victoria and, and in Australia so our first responders our medicine emergency medical people police tactical groups and, and including the military and and all of the other volunteers and firefighters etc have done a remarkable job and it's what makes working in this space so purposeful and so meaningful for me. Can you give us an idea, Peter, of, of, of some of those challenges you've alluded to for, for your unit and you've seen more broadly as, as the years unfolded, the last years unfolded? Yeah, thanks, Harry. I think one of the challenges that we were cognizant of in the early stages of this uh, crisis was uh, fatigue management, both from a physical point of view and a mental point of view. Our people had a variety of challenges in their personal lives as a result of schools being closed, partners losing their employment status and so forth. So not only did we have to keep our people on point because certainly we couldn't pause uh, the jobs that we were supposed to be performing and so forth. It, it was it was all about ensuring that our, our people had a clear head when they were at work, they were on point and they were ready to do what we needed them to do. The other challenges were having large numbers of people together in a, in a respective workplace heightened the risk of if somebody did get infected with the virus, it heightened the risk of that being spread throughout the workforce mm. and, and then the challenges to tr- provide that service delivery model that was expected. Yeah, I, what really stood out for me during that time in terms of, you know, members of mission critical teams being exposed. We saw that down at Alfred Hospital and I spoke to a couple of the, the emergency medicine staff down there. And, and it's really the, these communities and these teams don't have any options, do they? You know, you, you can't just knock off and walk away. So the, the, it just doubles, I suppose, the anxiety or, you know, I suppose in your from your perspective, the control measures and things that you need to think about. So definitely a challenging time. Mate, I understand you've been around tactical policing for so long and you've spent some time out in these other years and we'll come back to that but where did where did it all start for you where did the kind of dream or or what's the origin story for you I had a a lower class upbringing as a result of um, being brought up by a single parent and at the time I didn't know anything different to that so uh, we embraced that my brother and I and we were often left to our own devices because my mother was off working and so forth So as an adventurous young lad uh, roaming the streets of Melbourne, you would uh, explore and come across various challenges as a youngster on the streets of Melbourne. During my mid-teens, I was linked into a a cadet unit and immediately I was uh, drawn towards the structure and discipline of that cadet unit. That started to sort of get my mind as as a teenager into the military and police space. From there, I toyed with the idea of of going to the military and then I sort of uh, had an uncle who was in the army. He said, live life first. And it was during that live life first phase that I subsequently joined the police. Great. And was there a was there kind of a, a moment or a person, I, 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 you've talked about your uncle, but particular to the police or somewhere in that journey that the SOG presented itself to you? In the early stages, Harry, I just wanted to find a secure job. And I think on reflection, that was based on the fact that we did come from a lower class upbringing. We certainly respected what we had, but in the same token, there was that aspiration to have more than what what I did have as a youngster. I saw stability, job variety uh, within Victoria Police, um, which was the incentive initially. Okay. And so I guess pursuing that question a little, was there a point at which, you know, the, when was the first time you came across your the SOG full stop, but when was the first time you, you contemplated the idea of joining 
I'd played a lot of sport as a, as a teenager, um, football, cricket, um, and I didn't mind um, jumping in the ring and doing a little bit of boxing. So I, I was always fit and, and quite wiry and agile. So during the academy phase of my training, we received a presentation from the Special Operations Group. It was immediately in the first few minutes that they had me hook, line and sinker. And Great. my aspiration from that point onwards was that's what I want to do. That's fantastic. I love those, just thinking about those moments in people's lives. You know, we have, you know, I don't know, half a dozen, a dozen, 20, I don't know how many of those moments you have during life where you just go, wow, that's that's an inflection point at which, you know, that's changed things for me or for, for the individual. Hey, and I want to apologise for calling you a pimply-faced academy candidate, but uh, I didn't know what else to say, but I know that's what I was when I first kicked off. I actually thought someone had been sharing photos of me um, as a youngster with you because I think that's quite a spot on um, a reflection in relation to what I probably look like. Yeah, I just like to exaggerate for effect. So uh, you've been inspired by the presentation. And so what's next for you? I imagine you had to go and spend time at a police station uh, and then you put your hand up for selection. Yeah, spot on. My initial deployment was for the the Fitzroy Police Station, and back then it was a a challenging environment, high crime rate, lower socioeconomic members of the community, and, you know, there were a lot of battlers on the street who were doing it hard, and crime was not out of control, but it was very, very prevalent with everything that we saw. And it was during that phase that there were a number of instances where the SOG would come out and conduct their... Uh, arrests. Mm-hmm. So the fire in my belly was intensified. I was impatient. And it was during that impatient phase that I started to network and try and get an in into the SOG as far as I needed to know everything about it. So when I made my application and I undertook the training, I knew it was going to be hard, but I wanted to get in first go because I, I'm fairly much a competitive beast. So that started my journey to try and tap into that resource and and get myself as best prepared as I could. And can you, just for people who might not know, just give us an an understanding of the the roles and a brief understanding of the roles and tasks of the Special Operation Group here in Victoria. So the Special Operations Group, and, and I'm big on history, Harry, so it was formed in October 1977, and it was one of the first police tactical groups formed in Australia. And it was designed to address counterterrorism or threats of counterterrorism uh, within the state of Victoria. It was a, a bit of a soft and um, secret launch in relation to um, the Special Operations Group, and it probably first became public as a result of a newspaper article in 1980. Um, the Special Operations Group perform roles that clearly other police can't do. They focus on high-risk arrests. For people who are armed or expected to be armed with firearms or other lethal weapons, they're also involved in hostile vehicles, incidents whereby it's beyond the scope of normal police to resolve those matters. So interdictions? Yes, vehicle interdictions. And also, obviously, we still maintain the counterterrorism response for the state of Victoria. We are also involved in interoperability arrangements with other states and jurisdictions uh, across Australia. And as you highlighted in, in the introduction, we were the first police tactical group to deploy interstate to resolve a criminal event in 1996 with Port Arthur. Yeah, it's a, a, a pretty broad range of, uh, of work. And I'm sure there's some other things that, uh, you know, that kind of unprecedented events and, and whatnot that you have under your your uh, command as well uh, throughout the year. So back to selection, mate. What what uh, talk us through? You you rock up one day, day one selection, thinking you're prepared. What was it, what was the experience of SAG selection like for you? I'll just take it back a step, and I was fortunate to um, move to the Reservoir Police Station, which is a um, a northern suburbs area of Melbourne. Again, a high crime rate area. And it was during my deployment there that I come across a former member of the Special Operations Group who took me under his wing and indicated to me that he would prepare me physically and mentally for the challenges and rigours of selection. So after a year of football and an 18-month extensive uh, training regime, I was ready. Well, I thought so. Day one of selection (laughs) was confronting and there was about uh, 60 to 70 uh, young men 
uh, and a couple of old guys as well, who put themselves on the line to undergo the rigours of intestinal fortitude training, I suppose. On reflection, that's about the best way I can describe it. It was about um, being exposed to a series of physical challenges uh, with a view of um, weeding out those that weren't ready. And I've heard you refer to it as maybe a last man standing type of approach. Is that is that right? Yeah, you're spot on there, Harry. It was um, at times during the during the selection process. It was about we're going to keep doing this until someone pulls out. And true to their word, we kept doing it until somebody pulled out. So again, yeah. they were selecting out rather than selecting in. So it was an interesting, interesting experience. But as I've previously outlined, being so competitive as a young fella, I sized everyone up in the early stages and I, I kind of backed myself. Um, and I don't kind of want to be um, banging my own drum there, but I thought, well, if these people are good enough to stay, so am I. And I set myself little, little, little mission or little uh, achievements. You know, let's get to lunchtime and see how we go from there, and and the rest is history. Great. Yeah, I think Coleman. I've heard Coleman refer to that as shortening your horizon. So when you're under duress and high uncertainty and high ambiguity, there's this kind of net natural mental skill almost that we find common amongst or common characteristics amongst people on those types of selection cycles. They just automatically bring in their, their horizon, their timelines, and just achieve you know the next hour, the next uh, PM or AM or the next day uh, and break it down in that way. And I think that's really powerful. Rather than forecasting out to the, to the future where you can kind of create worry and, and anxiety, which then impedes your, your thinking and decision-making. What really resonates there with me is that competition, that competitiveness I found on my selection, and they're very similar. The PTG and military selection process are very similar. I actually strangely, and I feel a bit bad saying this, I actually drew some kind of strength from other people withdrawing. And I I didn't feel bad at the time because you, you're in it, but I, I reflect back on that. And I and so I, I there's there's something psychologically going there that that competitive that competition level. And I don't think we should should feel bad about it either because you know that confidence that you have that's part of the makeup it takes. You need to do some of the work that's asked of you as a special ops group or tactical police officer. Uh, some of the situations that um, we, you you expected to confront, you need to have that level of confidence, of self confidence and belief, because uh, you need to have that to override things like you know the physiology of fear and and other things that we'll we'll, we'll talk to in other in future um, team casts. So highlight on the selection course or lasting memory or self-affirming moments that you had where you, you thought about maybe giving it the boot? Sort of the reflections that I have and those things that stick in my mind are clearly the camaraderie that come with enduring such a, such a process as we did. And knowing that selection finished with four members, it started with between 60 and 70 members. Yep. And the last four standing, we could look each other in the eye and we had that common bond Sure, there were times that you thought, do I really want to um, continue with this process? But again, I really liked the way you broke down that bringing in those goals and those milestones and those horizons, because when you sort of sit back and initially for selection and then the training program, which goes for about three months, it is quite intimidating and the fear of the unknown, because you don't know what's coming your way. It worked for me, and I'm glad that you, you shared that realisation that it's it's quite practical to be thinking along those lines, um, yeah. particularly when you're under duress um, physically, mentally, and emotionally, because you know as well as I do, they throw everything at you during that selection phase. <laughs> there, were, there were times, uh, I'll be candid with you, there were times that I was sitting back there thinking, why on earth are they doing this to me? But mm. when I joined the team... And, you know, you're humping into a, um, a cannabis plantation for about five or six hours. You think you re reflect back to the training and you think, well, that's the reason why they were doing it to me, to make me ready for something like this. Yep. There's this Preston Klein, Dr. Preston Klein, uh, Preston, uh, my, my good friend, uh, talks about this shared 
suffering or privilege of suffering or, or a colleague of his, I think a, a, a doctor in our community that wrote about it and Preston picked up on that. And this privilege of suffering that you talk about four being left at the end, you know, that that's, that's that sense that you've all endured and suffered together and therefore there's a privilege in that. And it sounds counterintuitive, you know, going through all this, you've got to be crazy. I think part of the, part of you has got to be crazy to endure it. And, uh, but there is this, that sense of, of, of shared and unique suffering and, I think, you know, we see that in just ad hoc teams that are thrown together in moments of of trauma or catastrophe, you know, in sinking ships, or we saw it in New Zealand with the exploding volcano, those teams are just forged in a fascinating way. So that, that shared suffering is something that we echo, will echo through much of the community listening. So I'm really interested to move to, to fast forward a little, if we can, Peter, at this stage. And you worked in the SOG. We've touched on a couple of your experiences and time there as an operator. So just give us a flavour of that and then talk about you then moved out of the SOG. And I want to kind of just unpack that that part of your career, if we can. So starting with your, you know, you've entered the, the teams, you had an experience where you went to, to Tasmania. Can you take it from there? Sure. So upon joining the team and being part of um, the broader special operations group, I felt very privileged to be in that position. However, I really had to control my competitive nature because the people that I was standing on the line with during during various training regimes were clearly more proficient than I was due to the fact that they'd been in, in the office a lot longer than I had been. So I had to sort of um, recalibrate my expectations of myself because what I was finding is that I was sort of uh, feeling a bit down some days when I was being outshot or outperformed. And that really took me a little while to get my head around and actually inspired me to be the best I could be in that space. Operationally speaking, I love the thrill of the hunt. I love being on the job. I loved having my eye on the prize. And I think the reason why I, I loved it so much was I have this inner desire to protect those who can't protect themselves. Yeah. And to see the trauma, even as a young cop on the beat, and to understand how or try and get my head around how could this happen instilled this desire in me to make a difference and to help those who can't help themselves. Moving forward, it was an adrenaline addiction that we were all riding because every time you did one of those challenging tasks that were either that either stretched the office or brought us closer together as a team was another, I suppose, another notch on the belt and we were very hungry for more notches on the belt. Yep. I've characterised that as you know, you're like a bunch of greyhounds on the leash and in modern parlance we probably do much better at protecting operators from themselves in that regard because you, you'll say yes to everything and that's what you, you're driven to do, that, that life of service. Yeah, spot on, 100% with that. And our leaders at the time were steering the ship and the focus was purely on making a difference and doing those tasks and through attrition and so forth, there were certainly uh, long periods of time that if you were in the state of Victoria and you weren't injured, you were just about on every job that was uh, that was running. And, you know, to be honest with you, I loved it. I just loved the camaraderie, the cohesion, and I loved the fact that we knew we were making a difference. But more importantly, I loved the fact that it didn't really hit the media or the wires back then because the internet and, and social media and so forth wasn't really, it was still an emerging um, technological product. So we were flying under the radar, but we knew that we were doing really good things, which was, um, it really made me feel good. It must be a great satisfaction to catch a known criminal or a bad guy. Yeah, it is, it is. Um, particularly for those who have targeted vulnerable people within the community and, you know, deep down, we know that more often than not, those vulnerable people will never be the same again due to the trauma mm. that they've been exposed to. So when you can actually put the straps or the handcuffs on a POI or a person of interest or a criminal who has been responsible for those nefarious acts, there is a sense of satisfaction. Yeah. And again, it's not to make light of the situation it's very serious but there is I, I get it there's a deep satisfaction in in resolving a situation and and bringing that to an end and unfortunately that the, the they seem to, to never end they're lining up to the to the left 
uh, and keep you in your your teams in uh, in business for a long time. Unfortunately, but I'm glad that we've got uh, units like SOG and CERT to defend us against those those threats out in the community and more broadly. How long did you spend in in the teams there, and what uh, up until what point? So initially, I was within the team for seven years as a an operator. I left for about fourteen months to take promotion as a sergeant again back at a general duty station, and that allowed me to, I suppose, have greater clarity about how good the special operations group was. I then was fortunate enough to get a team leader's position back within the group, and I stayed for another eight years performing the role as a team leader and deputy tactical commander. I love that. I'm going to pull you up there and to, to focus in on something you just said. There, there is a tension inside mission-critical teams often where you, you don't want to leave and you don't, and it's seen as a bit of a you know losing your cap or a um, demotion to go to other units or outside of the unit. I've always kind of disagreed slightly with that and, and been in the camp that it's a good thing to leave and then to come back and to refresh. What was you, Did you have that experience or what's your take on, on leaving the unit and then coming back? You're right. Seven years as an operator at the group, I, at times I took it for granted. I started forming this sense of entitlement as far as the way that we operated within the office and so forth. Taking that break and going out to general duties, I realised how good the office was. Um, your comments about people wanting to stay in a specialised unit for a long period of time are accurate because I've also seen people who've stayed there past their use-by date and they've actually become quite destructive in their influence on particularly the younger members who are, who are joining the team. So for me, I found like it gave me a greater longevity to stay at the, at the group for another longer period of time. I came back with fresh ideas, a fresh view, and I was able to influence and encourage our newer members that how good the place was and to respect the fact that they do work in a, in a highly functioning and really good place. Yeah, I love that. I was way late in my career that uh, I was exposed to an outside environment and I learned so much. I learned things about how to train better, how to think better, about education, about personal interaction and and how to be a better leader in terms of, because the world outside had changed by, you know, I'd, I'd say around 2010-ish, the world was changing. We were switching from doing the job and, and just surviving on selection, for example, or or through the through your operator life. But outside in other units and other areas, they were focusing on how do we treat people better and manage people better for longer careers? How do we transition people? And I think um, it's fair to say that particularly in Perth, there was a bit of a movement um, and it was off the back of seeing what other organisations were doing and experiencing what they were doing. So I think it's a really powerful point and it's it's something I think, particularly in my experiences in Australia, I think it's something that's really caught on across all mission critical teams. And it's not just about you know being a, in emergency medicine and going to another department or another team and seeing what they're doing or another state or a country. It's actually going outside of your domain of expertise. So going to sports, what are they doing over there that we can learn going to corporates or to to wherever you know other teams of humans in completely different domains and they have something to teach it just gives you a different lens through which to look so I, I love that idea that you left I'd left the SOG and came back any reflections as a team leader it's a long time to spend as a team leader in the SOG any lessons learned that you wish you had have told yourself back then or had been told back then yeah, I think one of the one of the big uh, lessons on reflection is not to sweat the little things. More often than not, when a challenge would come my way, I'd dig my heels in and try and achieve an outcome that was aligned to my way of thinking and so forth. And at times, I think it probably annoyed the team because they may have had a different view or what have you. But putting my old head on those younger shoulders, had I realised that you know this is not one that I really need to be overly concerned about and I'm happy to let that, that one go through to the keeper, yeah. is something that I'd, I'd probably wish that I had that hindsight back then because it would have made some of the challenges that I had, the smaller challenges, probably more seamless and, and more easier to resolve rather than you know digging in quite firm and being a little bit, I suppose, pig-headed back then. Do you see that? today and, and do you, are you, you know, aware of it and pass on those reflections to the new leaders coming through that? 
Yeah, I actually like to I like to tell a few stories about my experience along the journey where I actually expose a little bit of um, my vulnerabilities as far as, you know, this incident happened, this is the mindset that I had, this is the decision that I had, and that decision was based on A, B, and C. But in hindsight, actually, I actually didn't get it right there. And I think that's quite powerful because one thing is you've got the divisional commander standing up in front of a group of members who are highly motivated and really hate making making mistakes. I'm exposing myself by saying, you know, I did make a mistake. I've embraced it. This is my learnings out of it. And please, I want to share it with you so you don't make the same mistakes. We've spoken a lot informally down at the unit and I've heard you talk about, you know, lessons learned and you've used this language of, you know, the old way of being was very task focused and through this storytelling, you think we can be more people focused. Well, that's is that that's one of the changes that you've you've seen over your time coming back and forth. And I'll come back to the pathway to commander shortly, but just want to pick up on that kind of task focus versus people focus. Can you just talk us through that? Yeah, for sure. My experience at at the SOG was all about the task and and what we were going to achieve. It turned me into a driven individual as far as the task was concerned. And at the end of the day, it was that mindset of achieve the task no matter what the costs are. So accordingly, when I got to the end of my career at the Special Operations Group and I transitioned as a station commander at the Richmond Police Station, I was pulled up very quickly in relation to my approach to leading the teams. And that task-focused approach that I had was clearly not going to work because an old veteran senior sergeant I was working with at the time said to me, listen, it's not all about going out there and arresting the crooks. You've got to bring your people along for the journey. And initially I struggled with that feedback, but on reflection, I realised that he was spot on and I can achieve so much as an individual, but I can achieve significantly more when the team's on board and they understand the reasons why we're doing certain things. So I played with that concept for about 10 years. And certainly when I came back to the group as the divisional commander in the role that I'm in now, that is certainly a trait that I'm trying to embed across all of my work units to ensure that I get the fact that we have a mission to achieve and a task that has been given to us from a particular area But the most important thing that we need to do here is to be people focused and we need to have soft people skills because, you know, for one reason or another, our people are more vulnerable than what they used to be. Now, I think that's because we've broken down the barriers and we've allowed people to put their hand up when they need to. So I think it's very important that we embrace that concept as far as the difference between the task focus and the people focus. What do you think was behind the old, the veteran senior sergeant um, having that conversation with you? What do you think he meant? Or what was your interpretation of bringing the people with you? What Was there any kind of concrete examples or anything that stuck out? I was working harder, not smarter. I was doing extended hours. I was expecting standards coming from the SOG. I had my standards weren't calibrated to what the team was um, capable of delivering. And I suppose it's one of the challenges for people who leave those highly functioning units that you need to take a breath. You need to understand your people for where you're now going to be working and you need to recalibrate your standards and expectations. Otherwise, your leadership style is going to significantly impact upon the team, not in a good way at times. Yeah, it's a, a great point. And I'll sometimes talk about giving yourself permission to relax, you know, to take a big, big exhale and relax because often in those environments, it's very high tempo and you don't really realize it at the time. I know when I left Perth almost to the, you know, like a, a week later, I felt this enormous weight lift and, you know, psychological and almost physical weight lift. And it took me a little while to get used to that. It was like um, being naked to, to an extent. You 
felt like you'd lost something, but I realized I know now that life's really enjoyable <laughs> and uh, you can you can relax and you don't have to uh, to be on on standby every moment of the day. So mate, you've done all that time, uh, senior guy in the in the teams. Just talk us through the transition then to into the kind of command pathway. So as a senior sergeant of a police station, I found it very naturally very easy once I recalibrated my expectations and so forth. And I put myself in positions, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it's because of my background at that, the group. I either was chosen or volunteered for the things that other people didn't want to do, the high-risk major events that were being run, the union demonstrations, the, the A-League soccer when it was out of control, and... I think that sort of um, put my name up into the space that he's ready to be a commissioned officer. So, you know, I got some feedback to say that I needed to knock the rigid response and the harder edges off, off me to be more subtle in my approach and so forth. So I took on board that feedback. I initially got promoted to a, a corporate area, which... Um, Again, I kind of struggled with a little bit, but I didn't have any any idea about um, the yeah. performance and development. <laughs> I didn't have any idea about this performance and development unit that I was put in charge of. But nevertheless, I networked extensively in internal of the organisation and external, and that allowed me to achieve some significant business outcomes. And I was subsequently moved to another couple of inspectors' position, leading frontline operational units and then shortly thereafter promoted to superintendent. And put your hand up for SOG or are you nominated? How does that work? Uh, In short, no, I didn't put my hand up. It's a little complicated. It's those decisions kind of aren't, (laughs) they're not made with you touting for positions. I was at peace with the SOG and it's interesting that you shared your experiences with the regiment and how initially you, you struggle with the concept of leaving. Uh, but when I left, I was at peace with the place. I thought to myself, you know, I've made a difference in my opinion. You know, I'm comfortable if I don't go back there. And I was quite fortunate that I worked in the same command as the Special Operations Group, Transit and Public Safety Command. And the divisional commander who was doing the role was moving on and my name was put forward and I grabbed that opportunity with both hands. Great. Well, mate, it's been, uh, you know, we've, we've covered a lot of ground there and thanks for sharing some of the, the lessons learned. And I know that uh, you've got some changes or not changes, but some evolutions or some, some impact that you want to leave still at the SOG and, and the broader group there, CERT and, and other units there. And you, you touched on something there that's really close to my heart and it's something I wish I had have cottoned on to a little earlier in my career and that is leaving the place better than you found it, making a difference and kind of doing that deliberately and not not in a way that it's all about you or the way you think it should be, but just being conscious that maybe you're a steward and you want to leave the position better than than you found it and leave it in a really good place for the next person. And it's it can be difficult at times because we all have our personal aspirations. But I know around you at the moment, and I, I, I say this humbly, that I see the SOG here in Victoria as a really progressive unit, or it's emerged as quite a progressive unit. And what I mean by that is it's open to outside ideas. I know you've had outsiders come in, psychologists and, and, and sports scientists and, and, and academic researchers, et cetera, and been very open to that. Sometimes I think you can sense the unit's a little nervous about this, but I think it's important, and I think um, the SOG's done a really good job and and I think you've taken over a really opportune time. It begs the question, mate. What what are you you're sitting here now in in the office overseeing these units? What what are the big differences you see between then and and now? Certainly, from a selection point of view, we're training our people smarter rather than harder. My initial comments earlier in our discussion related to um, we during selection members or applicants were selected out rather than selected in. We've now spun that on its head and we're actually looking for those attributes that we think are aligned to our success. And, you know, as you've indicated, we've sought advice from external psychologists and experts in the areas of selection and not just tactical police selection. We've developed a number of tools that allow us to look at people through a different lens. 
identifying those behavior traits that are aligned to success and to date. And a lot of that occurred prior to me coming back to the group. And there was a, a, a group of um, highly motivated individuals within the team that decided enough was enough. We needed to be more progressive and we needed to look at the way that we taught our people a different, through a different lens and, and a different way. And accordingly, we've been able to ultimately see a better trained and prepared operator come through the selection process and hit the team more proficient than they would have done in the past. And I think that is a significant achievement from our people. And little things like during my time through selection and when I ran the training course in, in 2005, you know, how did we choose our instructors? Well, I'll share some bias, and it was generally because they were good blokes uh, and they were aligned to what our intent was. But really, on reflection, they were probably good at riding a bike, but could they teach somebody how to ride a bike is um, is an adage that I like to throw out there. Preston will love you for that. Yeah, that's a, it's a, it is a great adage. And um, you've hit the nail on the head for me. I, I suppose the centre of gravity inside the whole mission critical teams research piece and, and, and kind of spreading the word and uh, is that the instructors. And you, Preston will love you. That, that analogy is perfect, you know, just because you're good at riding a bike or doing a thing doesn't make you great at teaching a thing or explaining a thing. I think you're great, a very... Uh, Great commentary around that. And I know a couple of the senior guys that are working with you are working pretty hard and targeting the instructor cadre to develop them. And I noticed in some quarters in in the late 2000s in the regiment, there was a bit of a pivot towards, you know, okay, we're spending 90% of the time on this candidate training, assessing, critiquing. They're going through this learning process, but we weren't doing much on the instructors. We were just assuming, as you've said, they're good blokes. We'll, they'll just crack on. Of course they can. They know how to do all this stuff, but it's very task-focused, and we we know that not very people-focused. And, in fact, some instructors, a bit like a footy coach on the weekend, you know, don't worry what your parents have told you. Forget all that. We're just going to go out there and win. The instructors were, were giving the world according to them, not according to uh, what Coleman might call what the race car needs now. What do we need to make it go faster in the modern kind of context? So I think we're we're slowly all as a community uh, learning lessons around that. And I guess it, that goes to a broader question about what what does the modern SOG operator need today that he may not have or she may not have needed uh, back in those days. Really good question you pose, Harry. I think one of the big things that I'm looking for and I strongly encourage through the leadership team down to the boots on the ground is I want people to be thinking outside the square. I want people to be networkers, not only within policing groups, but as you've highlighted, network with other groups, agencies and departments that may may not be police tactical groups, but we may be able to learn something from and it was during one of those conversations that I was having, having with the team, a couple of the team members, where they presented, they presented a case to me where they wanted to go overseas and do a training course, two of them. The sticking point was the cost. The cost was in excess of 20 grand. And, you know, I sat back there and I said, okay, guys, sell it to me. You know, I don't see any connections with police tactical groups. And quite simply, they said to me, no police tactical group in Australia has ever attended this course, and we think it's going to make us trailblazers or groundbreakers, and this is what you we think we're going to benefit from it. And that training program was the MCTI training program. I went out on a limb, I supported it, and we've gathered the rewards over and over again from sending those two blokes over there. So... Um, my comments aren't intended to pump your tyres up there, Harry, and, and, and the broader team's <laughs> tyres. It's actually to embrace the fact that, keep an open mind, if people bring these concepts, ideas and, and proposals to you, don't say no. Think about it, talk to them about it, and actually embrace it because you could actually get something out of it that makes a significant difference. And on this occasion, it did and it does. Yeah, I agree. And you certainly are pumping the tyres a bit. But I think uh, it goes to the point of the MCTI and that uh, we want to provide and facilitate the 
those community discussions across organisation, cross domain, you know, particularly in, in, in things like sports science. We've just realised so much in the last decade about sports sciences. Uh, sports science and how we train the operator, you know, just doing push-ups and bicep curls and chin-ups and going on long marches for no apparent end, they, they, were, they got us by in the past. But there's just so much uh, smarter way to do it. And, it, and it's a, for a different discussion, but that goes to the longevity of operators. Uh, it goes to uh, their maintenance and sustainability. It goes to how we transition them into a life after because that's challenging as well. And that if, we can, if we can train them and educate them and treat them better during life, I think they're on a much better long-term outcome. Um, and, and you can only get that from external organisations. And as I've said before, I take my hat off to, to Preston to start for starting this journey because it's quite unprecedented. Yeah, so there's a, I'm sure there's a lot of differences. We talked about the the characteristics. Is there any other? What are the biggest challenges facing the the SOG at the, at the moment? And um, where do you see the kind of future of operator in the environment? What environments they're operating in? And that's always this is always a tough one, Harry. I, I, I want to lead with mental health. The mental health of our people, that is a challenge for us because of the trauma that they're exposed to. And it's not only the immediate trauma that they're exposed to, it's the the cumulative exposure to trauma. Prior to me coming back, the team had put in some arrangements with an external provider, psychological support um, provider, who have, have made a significant difference in relation to the way our people think and process and manage their, their mental health. So that is a risk. It's an ongoing risk and it's something that we keep on point in relation to. I'll extend that also to the mental health of our community members. The number of instances where we are responding to people who are in crisis as a result of a mental health episode is, is uh, increasing exponentially and their actions are unpredictable. They at times don't feel pain and it often challenges us because they're not bad, they're just suffering a mental health issue that they, you know, they may or may not be aware of. So leading on from that, ice, uh, the drug, crystal methamphetamine is a significant challenge for us. Again, our tactics, um, we've had to vary our tactics to be able to address those individuals who are suffering from an episode on ice. We also we also are challenged by the immediacy of attacks. And in Melbourne, as you're aware, we've had Burke Street matter. We've had incidents that rapidly escalate. So again, we've had to create some agility in our operating model and be ready and be on point to respond to those incidents a lot quicker than perhaps we we could have or would have in the past. So there's some of the, the significant challenges we're facing, as well as some legislative challenges regarding charges of workplace manslaughter, which really encourages us to do um, strict and comprehensive risk assessments to protect our people. Not as an aside, but part of that broader uh, range of work too is uh, the counter-terrorism work, which is always evolving. And I know that uh, SOG have been at the centre of a couple of, in, you know, you've uh, interrupted some disastrous events from from happening, uh, interdicted those people, before, you know, kind of upstream, if you like. So I remember speaking to one of, uh, I'll, I'll call him Sergeant B, a few years ago, and he said that there was a period during the 2000s where you went from, I don't know, I'm making these numbers up, but you went from 50 to 100 jobs to 150 to 200 jobs in a very short period of time. And it was around the time that there was an increased sensitivity to counter-terrorism and also aligned with the explosion, I suppose, of ice and drugs on the streets uh, here in Melbourne. And uh, it was then I realised just how heavy a workload the SOG does and certain other units do without any fanfare at all. Um, we don't hear about the great work often enough for mine, but I, but I understand that you want to keep that pretty quiet uh, and, and, as you said before, kind of get around in the background, just do your job. No, you're exactly right, and and we still we still see the significant increase in in um, tasks that we're responding to. Already to date, we're, we've hit nearly 250 deployments for the SOG in the operational environment, which um, is just about unheard of. And you know, we're asking more of our people. We're preparing them better. Uh, we're equipping them better. But again, um, the workload is still very intense at the moment. 
And I've had a little bit to do with, uh, as an observer mostly, with uh, with selection and, and had some great discussions with some of your senior guys and yourself about selection. And I've had a bit to do with selection in terms of selecting females and opening up the purview uh, more broadly. And uh, you know, I've, I've finished my master's thesis in inclusivity in elite sports and, and some of the barriers that women face there. And they're real barriers. You know, a lot of people kind of dismiss this talk as, oh, it's all fluffy. And, and that's not right. Uh, it's, it's They're real and there's some absolutely brilliant, uh, you know, 51% of the population, uh, brilliant women out there that can absolutely do the job. It's just that there's got to be conditions and an environment conducive to it and, and some attitudinal change. It can be a vexed issue at times, but can you talk us through what the SOG or Vic Poll more generally in, in the kind of special operations domain, the discussions you're having at the moment around female selection and, and selection more generally? Females in tactical police teams is something that we're looking at closely. It will be a reality sooner rather than later, I hope. You know, I've had to challenge the team as far as what we're doing in this space. And I was really comforted by the fact that we engaged one of the universities to, to develop or to review and develop a, um, a barrier test for all applicants to achieve prior to commencing selection. And that involved them having a look at our existing systems, processes and structures. They also were exposed to a pre-selection and a selection course. And what they've come up with is a defendable barrier test that removes gender bias. Those comments that you made earlier about doing push-ups and chin-ups, um, sometimes for the sake of it, we've seen that our barrier test now has, we've reduced the number of chin-ups that our applicants have to do, which is more aligned to women because they at times struggle with the upper body um, strength activities. But keep in mind also, you know, the introduction over the years of CrossFit sees a lot stronger and more prepared female and male um, who are approaching our training programs um, more prepared. Yeah, they've had through life preparation, which which uh, is really important. We kind of discount that and the research shows that, you know, bone density and, and muscle atrophy rates, et cetera, uh, are impacted in males by ha- starting sport at a very young age. For example, you've already alluded to that. I had a strong sports background. So we, this is a kind of a generational thing. I, I'm quick to kind of remind people that we're not going to see uh, women kind of make this change straight away. We have to we have to create the environment and, and take away a few of the biases and do that deliberately and maybe even and lose a little bit of ground to do so. Yeah, exactly right, Harry. And we now assist female applicants during the preparation phase of their approach to selection and so forth with their mindset and giving them um, advice regarding the physical training and so forth because whilst at times they can be physically prepared in their in their own opinion, the mindset is something that they may not be used to. So we provide them with a suite of products to start to challenge their their approach to mental preparation for selection and so forth. And if I can if I can also say that there is light at the end of the tunnel here, because as you've outlined, I also look over the critical incident response team. And since October 2018, we've significantly increased the number of females that have joined the critical incident response team as a result of using some of the approaches that the SOG have already implemented as far as the psychological screening and and success profiles. And, you know, I've got a course finishing on Friday where we have the largest number of females finishing. There's 14 applicants finishing all up and six of those are females. Yeah, fantastic. I think it's great. And I always finish this conversation with often a grumpy colleague <laughs> and point them to the Jürgertropen in Norway, the hunter team, hunter, I think, hunter platoon, I think it is. I haven't caught up recently on where that's at, but they've been highly successful in even moving, really closing the gap on those arbitrary measures that we use like chin-ups and push-ups, etc. You know, they're important indicators of, of strength and performance, but we shouldn't be hanging our hat on those things. There's, uh, there's I, I personally, character traits and decision-making, um, load carriage 
is important and we can train for that, but decision-making and clarity of mind in, in ambiguous and uncertain or complex situations is, is equally important. And we know now we've got a level of sophistication that we didn't have in the 70s, 80s and 90s in our thinking and our behaving and our equipment and technical and technology. I look forward to that, the conversation around women in special ops kind of environments uh, continuing and evolving. It's just a no-brainer for me. And I know that's, you know, there'll be some people out there wringing their hands or clenching their teeth, but it's kind of, as you alluded to, it's it's coming whether we like it or not. So we may as well be prepared and, and give them the best chance. Yeah, we're, we're fully supportive um, as we've outlined, and we're even considering other roles that they may be able to perform to assist us operationally. At times, our operating model is challenged by the fact that you know, there might be two or three car guys sitting in a car or at a particular location where it would be more conducive to withstand scrutiny if we had a couple of women with those guys. So uh, again, we're, we're challenging that status quo. Yeah, great. And oh, look, I want to make, a, I suppose, a qualification as we wrap that part of the discussion up that, you know, I'll, I'll apologise to old grey blokes sitting here waxing lyrical about women on, on behalf of women, and certainly that's not the intent, but I, I, I hope that any women listening will take some comfort that we're doing what we can to, to, to move the paradigm slowly as it will be and necessarily so, but I think uh, it's an important thing to highlight. Last thing, Peter, before we start uh, heading home, I know something that's really important to you, and I've you've you've asked me to come in and and talk, uh, facilitate some discussions with some of the guys and girls down at the unit around uh, culture and the importance of inside culture, which is a big, fluffy, kind of slippery subject in itself. But inside the kind of context of culture, how to balance the high tempo. Of, that's demanded of operators and and a bit of work life balance. You know how how do we do that? Because it, it's all it feels almost impossible at times. And do you have any reflections or any lessons you've learned about how to better cope with operational tempo and, and a home life as well? It is a challenge because uh, some people may say that my work life balance is fine, and it's not until you sit back relax and take a breath and, and realize that, you know what, the hours that I'm putting in at the office are hours that I'm not putting in with the family. Or when I'm at home, I may be somewhat oversensitive to, to certain things that are said and your reaction may not be what it would normally or, or what it should be. So, you know, what I actively encourage and, and what I'm an advocate for is to find, to find strategies that allow you to react or relax, I should say, and also to find, to know your body and know yourself and actually understand the triggers that you start to reach um, when you find yourself getting getting wound up or what have you. I'm regularly looking at injury data and also trends in the injury data and absenteeism to get an understanding of, you know, what is the temperature at the coalface and so forth. Some of the things I've also I also do is I get changed in a common change room, and it's during those one percent moments that you actually hear and pick up some of the emerging issues that the, that the workforce are feeling, right. and you know you're able to sort of get on the front foot or ask those questions of others to ensure that we're not exposing our people. Yeah, that's a, uh, such a powerful point. I I, I uh, reflect and talk with people about picking up on the weak signals as a leader and being able to you know be acute enough to pick up on the the language and the tone or the affect of of individuals and and the team and kind of not just pass by and go oh yeah that's unusual or or just oh that's okay but if there's if there's a you know there's a tone a really negative tone or something maybe just parking that for the moment and then coming back around and, and either speaking to the individual or their leadership and just just picking past and not being critical not non-judgmentally to say is everything okay and I think the best leaders certainly I've worked under have been really attuned to that they come back later on much later on and go hey I just noticed something today and I just wanted to unpack that a little and it's just such a great way you know picking up on those weak signals in the in the in the uh, in the in the broader team. As a commander, mate, how do you provide the room for you, for the operators to 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 have some kind of work life balance? You expect them to be ready tomorrow to go out on anything. How do you? How can it must be a great challenge? Yeah, absolutely, it's a challenge. But again, I trust the leadership team. I've created a well defined playing field for the leadership team in relation to what my risk threshold is. 
and I actively encourage them to monitor how much time our members are having off. And I think what that's actually allowed for is the normalisation of conversations when people have got a bit going on at home or there's a bit going on at work or something may not be right. And today what we've been able to achieve is, you know, I'm an advocate for flexible workplace arrangements um, where we can make them work for for the employee particularly. We've been really able to um, support our people through those challenging times to ensure that we're listening to them, we're supporting them, but more importantly, we're supporting their families as well. And this is where our external provider comes in to support our members and their families when they find themselves in those kind of predicaments and so forth. It's not an easy task, as you can appreciate, Harry, but it's something that um, you can't take the eye off the ball on either, because if you to do that, you know, one of those one of those little incidents can manifest into something significant. And then um, in the past, we've actually lost good people by not monitoring, not caring, and and not yeah. not having those conversations, and not not allowing the normalisation of those conversations to occur. Yeah, it's a, that, that's a great point. We do we do kind of in the rush to success, we do lose people along the way that um, you know with slightly different management um, uh, approach might have got longer out of them, and they would maybe longer out of themselves. It's a huge challenge across the whole mission critical team in our community. Often, we're the first community to have pay cut or not pay cuts, but have resource cuts, you know, asked to do more on less. Uh, and I'm sure that's the case with you, Peter. You alluded to it before, you want to go and spend a bit of money going overseas to learn what's going on around the rest of the world. It's a, a, a kind of a fear, almost an avoidance-based conversation. You know, people don't want to kind of go there because they just expect no, uh, go back and do your job type of thing. But it, I'm sure that that uh, comment rate uh, res- resonates with everyone, uh, the kind of, I suppose, government-based efficiencies and resource cuts. So you're always up against it, but I'm glad you're finding ways to uh, mitigate that. Mate, it's been awesome. Again, all of these discussions could go on forever and on so many range of topics. And uh, I want to say thanks for coming on again, but I also want to say thanks for your service and to all the all the team at SOG, CERT, and the, the broader units um, out there, the protective services and the, and the bomb squad, if, if I can use a clumsy term. Fantastic job. I know how hard you're working. A lot of people do and have a, a huge amount of respect for the work you're doing and, and congratulations on your posting. I can't let you go without asking a couple of the mandatory questions. One is... What are you reading at the moment or what favourite book? Yeah, it's uh, my favourite book would be Legacy by James Kerr involving um, New Zealand All Blacks. As a, um, a divisional commander, I've got a lot of internal paperwork and, and findings to read, but um, that was a really enjoyable read and it actually gives me a lot of time to reflect on some of the fairly simple but powerful um, leadership lessons that, that I was able to extrapolate out of it. So that's my favourite at the moment. I've got a couple of teenagers at home who are, who are very demanding, who I love spending time with. So, you know, when it comes to the old man um, sitting down and reading a book versus throwing some hoops in the backyard, I tend to lean towards throwing the hoops in the backyard, (laughs) Harry, to be honest. Uh, Good on you, mate. That's uh, time well spent for sure. And what about if you're listening to anything at the moment or if there was a go-to, any music that you'd, uh, you'd listen to? Yeah, I, I, I like the I like the question, Harry, and I'll throw this one back at you. I'm a um, an avid listener of acoustic music, unplugged, whereby um, you can really you can really hear the guitar quite crisp and, and clear. Coldplay is a favourite of mine, also. But you know, we've been okay. locked down in a bubble and so forth with the restrictions. So what's actually worked with work for me is. Um, putting on a little bit of Hawaiian uh, radio stations um, when I'm coming back and forth from work and um, and reflecting back to um, some holidays that I've had over in Hawaii where um, I kind of can forget a few of my troubles or um, or pressures from work and um, I try and relate my my experience or my driving to work as if I'm driving a car over in Hawaii there you go 
That's uh, that's out of the Cognitive Behavioural Therapy Handbook 101 <laughs> for Think Happy Thoughts. And, Guilty. Uh, that's great. In the last episode, Coleman shared with us that he was listening to some um, Indian Native American chant music, uh, which was really interesting. I've since had to listen to it. It's pretty compelling stuff. So thanks, um, thank, thanks for sharing that with us. I guess that just goes to show. I'm interested in music because I'm interested in it as a psychological phenomena and its power to kind of unwind wind and transport us as you've indicated and I think humor and music two sleeping giants of, of of not only mental health and mental performance but just relaxing and and kind of buffering the the kind of stress chemicals that we have floating around in our community and I, my heart goes out particularly or, or those thoughts are particularly poignant given um, what we know the uh, frontline medical staff and others are doing in the US and the UK and, and globally at the moment our thoughts are with them. Peter, thanks very much for joining us, mate, and I look forward to uh, continuing um, learning more and, and helping where I can with the SOG, but we appreciate your commitment to the MCTI. You've been a great advocate for us here, and um, long may that continue. So thank you very much, and, and thanks for your service, mate. Yeah, thanks, Harry. I'd like to thank you for supporting my teams and the work that you do with them. Uh, I'd also like to thank you for your service, which, again, the majority of it would have been under the radar. But again, we appreciate the efforts that you've taken to make a difference also. So um, I've really enjoyed the, the chat, Harry. Thank you. Good on you, mate. Thanks, Peter. I've really enjoyed talking to Superintendent Peter Ward on today's show. Peter is the Divisional Commander of the Security Services Division at Victoria Police here in Melbourne. I'm sure you'll agree it's rare to find operators who have literally done every job in the team and then gone on to command them at the teams. I've really appreciated that opportunity to speak with him. I'll be back with some more guests over the coming months, including emergency physicians, sports scientists and cognitive researchers. And I'm hoping to bring on a world-renowned ethicist to talk about moral dissonance and moral injury. As I mentioned previously, it's a rarely talked about subject, but uh, I think it's something we can learn and open our minds to uh, a lot more. Uh, you can find out more about the Mission Critical Team Institute at missioncti.com. That's missioncti.com. Uh, on the website, you can sign up to our newsletter, join our distribution list. And uh, if you like, uh, you can share the Teamcast all over your favourite social media and podcast channels. Until next time, thanks for tuning in and look after each other.